You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Sun Mystery and the Mystery of Death and Resurrection. It is volume 211, The Collected Works, subtitled Exoteric and Esoteric Christianity. This is Lecture 9, entitled Spiritual Insight and Initiation. Given in London, April 14, 1922, there is a, a canard on this, there's a warning on this that says that uh, uh, it was given in three sections, first all in German by Steiner, uh, and then that was uh, restated by, um, I believe, George Adams. And so there's uh, some question on the transcript due to that. Anthroposophy, as I present it, has the same foundations as the science of initiation of any bygone era. But anthroposophy adapts initiation science to modern times. In the course of evolution, the constitution of the human soul has undergone various metamorphoses. Each new age in the development of civilization offers a new primary soul constitution and initiation science, which aspires to investigate the eternal aspect of the human being and the cosmos, must adapt accordingly. In our time, Initiation science cannot be the same as it was in the Middle Ages or in ancient Greece, not to mention even older civilizations. As an initiation science, corresponding to the needs and aspirations of modern human souls, anthroposophy must start from two assumptions. First, that our modern scientific worldview does not permit us to recognize the eternal, either in ourselves or in the cosmos and second, that turning inward and away from exoteric science in mystic contemplation does not achieve satisfactory results. The reach of exoteric science does not extend to the eternal, and while inner contemplation can produce mystical faith, it cannot produce knowledge of the sort that modern human beings need. I will not take the time to prove these two introductory statements in detail, because I assume that all of you here today have personally experienced the inability of exoteric natural science to lead to any satisfying conclusions about the eternal in your own soul and in the cosmos. I will also assume that you are seeking real knowledge, not merely an inner mystical illusion. I will choose instead to speak in detail about the relationship of anthroposophy as we understand it here, to natural science on the one hand and to mysticism, as it is often practiced on the other. Let me simply say that anthroposophy takes the spirit and the soul constitution of modern civilized human beings as a starting point for acquiring what I will call exact clairvoyance. This goal is why anthroposophy has so many opponents today. Anthroposophy is also very difficult to grasp, in spite of the fact that virtually all of our modern soul forces are longing for it. Why is this so? 
It is because we cannot move beyond our conscious judgments, feelings, and so on to the unconscious longing that really is already present in every thinking human soul. This unspecific longing, this unconscious goal, demands that we aspire to more profound and higher knowledge of the eternal, and that we acquire this knowledge through very specific exercises that cultivate the human soul and its capacity for knowledge. Furthermore, we must be able to formulate the perceptions that result from these exercises with the precision we have come to expect today. Anthroposophy must present itself to our contemporaries with all the precision and conscientiousness of the natural sciences. At the same time, its knowledge of the eternal, imperishable element in human beings is intended to be accessible to even the simplest, most naive hearts and minds. Having said this by way of preparation, let me move on to a brief description of of how anthroposophy, the modern science of initiation, arrives at its path to knowledge. Anthroposophy is based on recognizing the relationship among the three fundamental forces of the human psyche, thinking, feeling, and willing. When we talk about thinking or ideation, we know that we are reflecting on something that makes us awake and alert. During sleep, our conceptual activity is silenced. From the time we fall asleep until we wake up, all of our consciousness is dimmed. We see the world brightly lit to the extent that we can take in this bright light with our ordinary consciousness, which is filled with wakeful ideas. As for our feelings, in human terms they are perhaps the most important contents of our inner life, but they are not as clear as ideas. They well up from unknown depths and are illumined to a certain extent by our ideas and thoughts, but they are not permeated with the same clarity as ideas themselves, and everything related to human impulses of will is still less clear, in fact, very dark indeed. We will have more to say about this later. The will impulses that pervade us rise from unknown depths and induce us to act. It is very uncommon to be clearly aware of what is happening in us when a will impulse is present. We can distinguish among these three basic forces in human soul activity on the basis of their different degrees of clarity and and many other factors. Nonetheless, they form a unity within our soul activity as a whole. We might say that ideation is one pole, But we also know that will activity is involved when we string ideas together or develop one idea into another. Although will impulses represent the opposite pole, they do play into our ideas. Feeling stands between thinking and willing. If we did not consciously shape our life's most important actions or if ideas could not incite us to act, we would not be human. Clearly, our will is also imbued with ideas. It behooves anyone who wants to develop exact clairvoyance, in the anthroposophical sense, to cultivate both the life of ideas on the one hand and the life of the will on the other. Thought exercises on the one hand and will exercises on the other, these are the practices that open the portal to the supersensible world where we can recognize the eternal in ourselves and in the cosmos. Thought exercises 
entail becoming aware of the will's influence on thinking. Will exercises involve observing the influence of thinking on our will. In our ordinary life, we pay no attention to the element of will, but to achieve modern initiation, we must pay particular attention to the hint of will that is present in ideation. We gradually learn to do this through the exercises I described in title How to Know Higher Worlds. The contents of our thoughts, which we usually consider their most important aspect, must be allowed to take a back seat while we learn to consciously apply our will to our thinking. Let me describe briefly how this works. I can indicate only the main points here today. You will find the rest in Title and Outline of Esoteric Science, Title, How to Know Higher Worlds, and other books of mine. Think of an idea that is completely clear and easy to survey, such as a mathematical triangle. Make this idea the center of a complex of ideas. The content of the idea is not important at all. What is important is the effort you apply to this thinking meditation, focusing all of your soul activity on a single complex of ideas. We must learn to disregard everything else in the world so that nothing exists in our consciousness except one idea, a single complex of ideas. It takes a great deal of mental exertion to do this, but the repeated effort strengthens a force in our souls, just as an individual muscle grows stronger through repeated use. For one person it may take months to see results, for another years. But if we repeatedly concentrate all our mental energy on a single central idea, this soul force will be strengthened. After a while this effort results in an initially unsettling inner experience. We find ourselves strengthened and energized for a kind of thinking that we did not have before. What we have then accomplished is easiest to describe as follows. <clears throat> when we face the ordinary, everyday world, the sense impressions we receive are very vivid. We are energetically involved with these sense impressions, with a world of colors, sounds, temperatures, and other stimuli. In our everyday consciousness, thoughts are weak in comparison to sense perceptions, as you can confirm by thinking about your own thoughts and sense perceptions. Through the exercise developed earlier, however, our thought activity ultimately becomes as vivid and energetic as our everyday sensory activity. This is an important milestone in human perception, because at this point our thinking is no longer linear as it is in our ordinary consciousness. It becomes as vivid, intense, and saturated as any outer sensory perception. We have advanced from ordinary, abstract, representational thinking to something we can call imaginal thinking. In this sense, imaginal does not mean that we lose ourselves in imaginations or fantasies. It means that we can behold worlds that live in our souls as if in dream images, but they are not dream images. They are filled with inner reality. When we have practiced living in imaginal thinking for a while, being involved in it as whole human beings, we discover that we sink down into a previously unknown world, 
Through imaginal thinking, we gain access to the first level of the supersensible world. We gradually discover a second human being living within us, a second body that is just as real as the outer spatial physical body. The outer body is an organized structure whose individual members are mutually interdependent. The head depends on the hand, and the hand on the head, and the right hand depends on the left. The limbs and organs of the spatial human body are all interdependent. Similarly, we discover a second time body. There is nothing spatial about it. This body presents itself to the mind's eye in the form of a monumental tableau. Once we achieve an adequate level of imaginal perception, we no longer remember by looking back on individual events. When we look back over our entire earthly life to date, back to the earliest years of childhood, we see it all at once as if in a single image, but we know the image cannot be a spatial image. If we were to attempt to draw it, we would draw something like a flash of lightning, which can be held fast only for an instant. This is the time body, which I have also called the body of formative forces or the etheric body. It cannot be drawn in a single image. Any attempt to do so produces only a cross-section of a time organism. In this time body, we see how we were equipped in childhood with inborn, supersensible forces that sculpted our brain and then found the transition to the respiratory and circulatory systems, working their way into the entire spatial structure of the body until they mastered it completely. During childhood, the time body, which we learn to experience through imaginal perception, increasingly takes possession of the entire spatial body. As the etheric body's forces unfold, it fills the spatial body. We are unaware of either the etheric body or its effects in our ordinary consciousness. Through imaginal perception, however, we become conscious of this time organism. As a result, we learn to perceive why we have certain character traits and abilities. For example, we learn why one person is a talented painter, another a mathematician. These abilities are the result of something supersensible that shapes our earthly existence. <clears throat> when we develop exact clairvoyance, by systematically exercising our capacity for thinking in this way, we learn to explore the first level of the supersensible within ourselves. Imaginal perception is the first level of supersensible perception. Through it we perceive the supersensible time body within the physical, spatial, earthly body. Up to this point, I have been attempting to describe how we reach the first level of supersensible existence through imaginal perception. This first supersensible element is present within the sense-perceptible world, and we can perceive it without leaving our earthly bodies. In other words, within this earthly body lies a supersensible member of the human constitution, which I have described here at least in broad strokes. We become familiar with it through imaginal perception. But when we move on to the second level, we leave the physical body and approach the higher, eternal aspect of human nature, which transcends birth and death. In ordinary life, 
the will's influence on our capacity for thinking is involved in achieving imaginal perception. But to continue along the path to the supersensible world, we must perform the opposite of the first exercise. Even in everyday life it is important not only to be able to focus on a single idea or object, but also to be able to let go of it. This observation leads to the next exercise. Having systematically concentrated our mental energy on a single idea, which can lead to imaginal perception, we must then apply even greater energy to avoid becoming caught in that idea or complex of ideas so we can continue along the path to higher knowledge. Once we have acquired vivid, imaginal thoughts, we must get rid of them deliberately. We must erase them from our consciousness. With practice, we become increasingly able to empty our consciousness of the heightened ideas we developed through concentration or meditation. Ultimately, we learn to be fully awake when our consciousness is empty. Let us consider the implications of being wide awake with an empty consciousness. Ordinarily we fall asleep, that is, we become unconscious, in the absence of sense impressions from outside or memories from within. On the path to higher knowledge, we prevent ourselves from falling asleep by first intensifying and then extinguishing mental activity. In this state we are awake and alert but our consciousness is completely empty and receptive to perceptions of a new sort. These are not in sense impressions, which our enhanced thinking extinguished, nor are they memories or the all-encompassing tableau of past experiences we perceived in imaginal thinking. What now enters our consciousness is totally new and bears no resemblance to our natural surroundings. In our empty consciousness we behold a supersensible milieu all around us, just as we are normally surrounded by the physical world's colors and sounds. <clears throat> Spiritual beings emerge from everything around us. Instead of seeing drifting clouds, for example, we perceive the supersensible beings in them. The world we now behold is not a world beyond the sensory world. It lies in front of us, just as the sensory world does, but it is truly supersensible and accessible only through initiation. As our consciousness submerges in this supersensible world, we learn a new way of thinking that depends neither on ordinary thinking nor on the nervous system. Although the nervous system formerly served as the instrument of our thinking, in this state we no longer need to rely on the brain. Purely mental energy now brings thoughts to life in our consciousness. Once we are able to do this, we make many discoveries that clarify how this new thinking derives from our old thinking. Because brain-free thinking does not include memories in the usual sense, it cannot be compared to brain-bound thinking, which is healthy only if it includes memories. This may sound paradoxical, but it is true, nonetheless, that experiences on this supersensible level initially do not generate memories. This, is, this sometimes comes as a surprise to students of initiation science. Having achieved a certain degree of clairvoyance, they expect to be able to preserve their clairvoyant experiences in memory, 
and recall them just as they would recollect other thoughts, and they are unhappy because they cannot do this. They are aware of having been surrounded by a supersensible world and are frustrated at being unable to remember it in their physical bodies. But this phenomenon is totally characteristic of the experience of any reality that is not merely a thought. If I have a sensory experience, I can remember the thoughts associated with it. I can recall my thoughts about a rose, but to have the rose itself before me again in all its redness, I must go back to the real thing. Similarly, having achieved a new and higher type of perception through initiation, I must retrace my steps to a spiritual experience in order to repeat it. People who speak from even the most basic personal spiritual experience, instead of merely talking about what they have learned from the spiritual world from other sources, know that exact clairvoyance must create the experience anew in their souls each and every time. Natural scientists can depend on memory, but spiritual researchers must always retrace the steps that led to their initial experience. In this sense, each spiritual experience is always new. Thus, spiritual experiences and the experiences of ordinary consciousness also have different prerequisites. The ability to orient ourselves in spiritual worlds and truly perceive them also requires a specific trait of character. In ordinary life, we call this presence of mind. It allows us to make decisions in any situation without hesitation. Observing the supersensible world takes a great deal of practice in developing presence of mind. Without it we would not have time to grasp what we experience in the spiritual world. The event would be over before we got there, so to speak. As soon as we advance to brain-free thinking, we also need the faculty of extremely rapid deliberation. With more practice in cultivating the strength to empty our consciousness while remaining awake and aware of the supersensible beings in our surroundings, we learn to extinguish not only individual ideas but also the entire etheric body. Extinguishing the etheric body empties our consciousness in a higher sense, allowing us to perceive our life in soul and spirit before we descended from supersensible worlds to take on earthly bodies. Through inspiration or inspired perception, we learn to perceive life before birth. Inhalation pulls physical air into our lungs, and inspiration pulls the spiritual world into our empty consciousness. On a spiritual level, we inhale the spiritual worlds we knew before descending from spiritual heights to physical earthly existence. Through inspired perception, we learn about one aspect of our eternal being, namely unbornness. No one talks about unbornness, but it is one aspect of the eternal human soul. Its other aspect is immortality, which negates death. We will talk about it in the third section of this lecture. As human beings, we are unborn in the same sense that we are immortal. As a modern science of initiation, Anthroposophy does not proceed philosophically by drawing conclusions and building on what we already know. 
Instead, it prepares human souls to achieve higher perception through practice. A soul that develops to a level higher than that of ordinary life learns to perceive its own eternal nature. This is the aspect of inspired perception that relates to our own human nature. Let me also describe its other aspect, although I can present it only sketchily today. Through inspired perception, we also learn to perceive the outer world. For example, in the outer sense-perceptible world, ordinary exoteric science conceives the sun as a self-contained body in space. This physical body, however, is only one aspect of the sun's total being, just as the human physical body is only one member of the human constitution as a whole. In the case of human beings, we say that a being of spirit and soul lives out inside the body. In the case of the sun, however, a supersensible element or spiritual aspect is outside, filling the entire universe. The spiritual aspect of the sun is everywhere, in minerals, plants, animals and human beings. We simply perceive its physically concentrated form when we look up at the sun. Through inspired perception we learn to recognize the spiritual aspect of the sun in plants, animals and humans and even in every detail of the human body, in lungs, liver, heart, brain and so on. Today I have shown you not only how we can achieve true human self-knowledge through inspired perception, but also how this inspired perception can be applied to practical activity. I showed you this with regard to one particular field, but it is also true of others. On the one hand, initiation science provides a foundation for the human soul's most profound aspirations. On the other, it provides what we need to intervene in the cosmos on a practical level and in a deeper sense than exoteric, sense-based science permits. In addition to the spiritual aspect of the sun, however, we also recognize the spiritual aspects of all other outer bodies. The moon as a whole, like the sun, does not have sharply defined contours. The external physical moon is only the physical concentration of the moon's essence, which pervades all of space. Today such statements are considered mere superstitions, but to those able to perceive such phenomena, they are as exact as any scientific statements. Inasmuch as plants, animals and people have physical bodies, we see them as objects in the outer physical cosmos, but through inspired perception we learn about their inner nature. The same is true of individual organs, hands, lungs, liver and so on. The spiritual aspects of the sun and the moon are at work in them too. The sun in their sprouting, germinating and thriving, and the moon in their degeneration and decline. We could not survive without these aspects of sun and moon. When we recognize the sun's effect as ascending and the moon's as descending, we are learning to recognize their spiritual aspects in the outer world. We can also learn to recognize pathological cosmic effects, such as whether sun influences or moon influences prevail in a diseased organ. The effects of sun and moon are present as opposing forces in plants, animals and humans. Based on this knowledge, 
We can also learn to identify individual outer natural forces that point to remedies for specific internal illnesses. This is one example of how anthroposophy begins to influence practical activities, in this case medicine. Medical knowledge of this sort can be cultivated by investigating how cosmic spirit influences excuse me, let me read that again. Medical knowledge of this sort can be cultivated by investigating how cosmic spirit influences human illness and health. I can say only a few words today about anthroposophical medical science as it already exists. But unless we move toward spiritual perception of the cosmos, all medicine, all psychology, and all therapy remain nothing more than the result of blind experimentation. Through inspired perception, as I have just described it, we perceive for the first time the real human soul, the soul being that survives even outside the body and exists even before it descends from worlds of spirit and soul into a physical earthly body. Our perception of the eternal soul remains one-sided, however, if we advance only to the level of inspired perception, which allows us to perceive only the unborn soul, the aspect that exists before birth. To perceive the aspect that survives death, we must continue with our exercises to develop supersensible forces of perception. We do this by bringing thinking to bear on our will, just as our concentration exercises brought will to bear on our thinking. I will now give a brief description of how to do this. Let us begin with a simple example. We sit down quietly and think about what we experienced during the day. But instead of beginning with the morning and tracing the sequence of events through the day, we review the day in reverse, beginning with the evening and continuing back through earlier events in as much detail as possible, ending with the morning. Initially, it may be necessary to select a single event to review in reverse. Later, with practice, the entire tableau of the day begins to unfold as if by itself. The important point in this effort is that we are accustomed to passively abandoning our thinking to the outer succession of events. In other words, we always tend to recall events in the order in which they occurred. Limiting our thinking to the natural sequence of events does not strengthen our will. Excuse me, does nothing to strengthen our will. We strengthen our will by doing the opposite, by freeing our thinking from that natural sequence. Reviewing the events of the day in reverse order ex- exercises our will. Similarly, we can imagine hearing a melody or seeing a drama in reverse. The point is to free ourselves from the outer succession of events by exerting our will. This effort strengthens the will and cultivates the inner strength that drives thinking into our will, just as exercises in concentration and meditation drove will into our thinking. I have described this will exercise in greater detail in the books I mentioned earlier, but let me mention a few additional points here to make it more understandable. What happens when we go to great lengths to educate our will? What happens when instead of passively accepting what our outer life, upbringing and surroundings have made of us, we undertake to educate ourselves as adults? 
What happens when we take ourselves in hand to such an extent that we eliminate old habits and develop new ones through years of practice? What happens when we apply the power of our thinking or the willpower that lives in our thinking in attempts to develop lasting character traits that we do not possess initially, a process that may take seven years? By repeating and persisting in these efforts for decades, we strengthen our will. There are also many other will exercises that allow us to approach the supersensible world from this other side. But how does our consciousness relate to will impulses? Let me explain it like this. A will impulse is expressed when I raise my hand or my arm. This impulse then recedes into the dark recesses of my being. It eludes my ordinary day consciousness as if I were asleep. We may say that we dream our feelings, but we are asleep with regard to our will impulses. As far as our souls are concerned, our bodies are opaque to will impulses. We perceive certain objects as opaque to physical light because they do not allow light to pass through them. Similarly, our bodies are opaque because they do not allow will impulses to show through. We cannot see into our will. Physical vision is possible because the lens of the eye is transparent, except in illnesses such as cataracts, in which case we no longer see clearly. <clears throat> this is not to say that the physical body is sick in ordinary life. Anthroposophy does not promote false asceticism. But if we could make the body transparent to the soul, not to physical vision, of course, we would truly be able to perceive will impulses flowing from our thoughts into the physical body. If the physical body were transparent in this sense, we would be able to see through to our will impulses. In perceiving ourselves as beings of will, we would also see into the spiritual world of will to which we belong. That spiritual world of will is a world outside us that becomes transparent to us through will exercises. When we achieve this level of perception, the physical body becomes transparent to the soul, revealing the will. If we persist in these efforts, we perceive an image of the moment of death, when we surrender the physical body to the earth and pass through the portal of death as beings of spirit and soul. We perceive this image of crossing the threshold of death. <clears throat> when we succeed in making the physical body transparent, and behold the spirit through it. We understand what leaves the physical body. We not only look into the spiritual world, we begin to live in it. This stage is intuitive perception, true intuitive perception. It allows us to behold immortality. When we achieve this stage by way of imagination and inspiration, we learn to experience ourselves as eternal spiritual beings belonging to the cosmos. We behold the spirit of the cosmos with our own eternal spiritual souls. Like the dreaming atavistic clairvoyance of ancient times, initiation science, adapted to the constitution of the modern human soul, allows us to ascend from the transitory to the eternal. But now we do so in full consciousness.
In anthroposophy, however, the knowledge that results from spiritual perception is not restricted to those who actually do all these exercises and convince themselves of the existence of the eternal world and its beings through direct personal experience. To do research in the spiritual world, imagination, inspiration, and intuition are necessary, but modern spiritual researchers bring back what they can from this world, clothe it in ordinary logic and language, and present it to their contemporaries. What they discover can be understood by anyone with a healthy feeling for it. To understand a work of art we do not have to be painters ourselves. We simply need a healthy artistic sense. Similarly, common sense and an unbiased approach are enough to allow us to understand all the results of spiritual research. We must simply avoid creating misunderstandings on top of misunderstandings, as has so often happened. The imaginal, inspired, and intuitive modes of perception that I described here today have often been confused with hallucinations due to pathological conditions. Conceivably, the imaginations we seek to attain might be nothing more than hallucinations or the visions of a trance medium. But in fact, the meditation and concentration exercises that I described are the exact opposite of the mediumistic state. Someone who is hallucinating is totally caught up in that state, but our healthy common sense is preserved when we ascend through the stages of higher perception through spiritual exercises. People who preserve their healthy common sense are always able to monitor and critique what is going on. They cannot lose themselves in unfounded fantasy or hallucinations. Such pathological states are the exact opposite of imagination, inspiration, and intuition. They are the opposite of what happens when modern consciousness, or an extension of it, serves as the foundation for convincing ourselves of the reality of supersensible existence. Through the anthroposophical science of initiation, we gain supersensible knowledge that is adapted to modern life. Modern consciousness is a stage that we must pass through. We must experience all the triumphs of exoteric perception of the world. But if we are to serve modern civilization, and especially the future, we also need to perceive the supersensible world. This need is presaged by the many, many people who now aspire to supersensible perception, and realistically so, through anthroposophy for religious purposes. Anthroposophy hopes to answer this new call. I will say more on this subject tomorrow when I talk about the paths of anthroposophical initiation science that lead to the mystery of Golgotha, to a true appreciation of Christianity. Today, however, I simply wanted to describe the task of anthroposophical initiation science in general terms. When we stand in front of a person and look at her or him with our physical eyes, we get, get an impression of that person's outer physiognomy. This impression is incomplete. We see the whole person only when our own heart and soul can see into that person's soul and spirit. We cannot see the whole person with our physical eyes, nor can we perceive the cosmos and humankind in their totality if we apply, 
apply exclusively exoteric modes of perception. To perceive soul and spirit in the cosmos, we need an initiate's perception, not the consciousness supplied by exoteric perception. We must become convinced of this fact. Only then will we strive to meet the true needs of the human soul by complementing the great advances of the exoteric natural sciences whose contributions anthroposophy acknowledges wholeheartedly with modes of perception that reveal soul and spirit within the cosmos and within human beings. Anthroposophy is intended to supplement and support exoteric modes of perception with inner spiritual perception, just as a complete view of any human being must encompass not only the person's exoteric existence, but also the soul within, so too. Anthroposophy hopes to be the soul and spirit, the inner aspect of modern perception as a whole. The end of Lecture 9